think that we are live uh, to Facebook now uh, at this point. And uh, just wanted to say good morning and happy uh, Sunday to everyone. Uh, this is Office Hours on our book, our study of the book of Job, week number four. Uh, of course, if you've missed any of our previous weeks, you can, you can find those on YouTube or on the, the Facebook uh, group, Office Hours group. Um, but we are, we are pleased uh, this morning uh, to be joined uh, by a distinguished guest. I'm Chris Holmes. I'm a, the scholar at residence at uh, First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. And who are you, Brennan? I'm Brennan Breed. Uh, I am Associate Professor of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary, and uh, I'm also a theologian residence at uh, First Presbyterian Church in Marietta uh, in Georgia. But we are uh, beyond pleased uh, to welcome uh, one of the most uh, distinguished scholars of the Hebrew Bible uh, who is working today, that is uh, Chun Liang Sao, uh, who is uh, presently the Vanderbilt Buffington Couples Chair in Divinity, Distinguished Professor of Hebrew Bible. Uh, this, this year is also teaching at Emory University this past year. He, uh, one university cannot contain uh, the creativity <laughs> and uh, teaching explanatory power of uh, Chun Liang Sao. Um, he's also well known uh, for writing uh, one of the best uh, grammars of biblical Hebrew, uh, but uh, as he will tell you, uh, he's much more interesting than that. Uh, uh, one, of, one of the most uh, important works on Job uh, in the history of scholarship on the book of Job was published uh, several years ago. Uh, that's uh, uh, Professor Liang Sao's commentary on uh, Job chapters 1 through 21. Uh, that's part of the Illuminations series that he also edits. He was also uh, uh, instrumental in creating the uh, Encyclopedia um, uh, of Biblical Reception, the EBR uh, for the Greater Press. Uh, we are all eagerly awaiting uh, the second volume uh, of the Magisterial Commentary on Job that will also be an illumination series, so keep your uh, eyes peeled for that one. Um, but he's also written uh, hundreds of uh, important articles and thought pieces and uh, is constantly coming up with new ideas. And one of the most important uh, uh, things that, that uh, Dr. Seau has brought into uh, the world of scholarship, uh, well, I should say lots of people do this work, but um, he has, uh, in a way, played a, a huge part in mainstreaming this in biblical studies, and that's the study of biblical reception history. Uh, so instead of just looking at original ancient contexts, uh, looking at the ancient world and what the text might have meant to its first authors or readers and so on, uh, uh, Professor uh, Seau has, has uh, built this um, uh, system for studying what he calls the history of consequences. That is, what have texts done? How have they uh, produced readings and understandings, uh, not simply just been received? So uh, this is fascinating work, um, something that uh, whenever he publishes something, uh, everyone is looking through to see the cool pictures uh, and, and amazing stories uh, of what these texts have done. Uh, so he's uh, recently published um, uh, a, a chapter in a book uh, about how Job uh, uh, is a uh, classic. Uh, how does how has Job functioned as a classic of world literature? So, in any event, uh, all to say, uh, uh, amazingly creative scholar, but also someone who um, uh, actually goes and looks at all of these ancient sources in great detail. Someone who can look at the most microscopic elements and. Uh, think about the big picture, uh, someone who also can think about theology uh, and the impact of uh, the kind of ethical impact uh, of all of these different things. I posted, by the way, on the syllabus, a link to a talk that he gave on the ethics uh, of the book of Job. So anyway, uh, there's uh, other other uh, bits of uh, 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 Liang Xiao's productivity that you can uh, uh, see on our website. But uh, uh, let me just say this. Uh, thank you so much for coming here today, Liang. We are uh, overly pleased uh, to have you uh, and, and for you to share your wisdom with us today. Um, but let me just start. We, we usually start by asking uh, the, our, our guests to share with us uh, just a couple of um, uh, presuppositions, hermeneutical presuppositions or theological 
presuppositions, simply to just get give all of us a feel uh, for the perspective that you tend to bring with you uh, as you interpret biblical texts. So thank you again for coming and, uh, and enlighten us. Oh, so much pressure. So so while we're dealing with the scripture, basically it's theological uh, literature. Job, for instance, is a literary classic, as you mentioned. It's a classic that's spawned and preserved in a community of faith. So it represents a faith community's uh, efforts to understand self and the world in terms of sensing of God. In this case, a world where traditional understanding of divine justice in the face of blatant injustice mm-hmm. is a problem. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's theological reflection. Um, and it is, this is not just an ancient artifact. It is a, a literary point of conversation, a spirited conversation that transcends time and space. And the readers invited to join in this conversation that has many, many voices. So we are invited to participate in it. So it's an ongoing conversation, not just an ancient artifact. Yeah, and uh, one of the um, uh, images that you have used uh, to great effect in talking about this uh, history of interaction with the biblical text that is also a part of it has been about Chinese painting. I wonder if yeah, you can uh, share uh, share your your image, generative image about that. Yeah, so I mean, you, you've seen Chinese landscape paintings before in Chinese restaurants, I'm sure. And you typically have Chinese painting with one stamp or two stamps. Well, I saw what, I, this whole thing came to, came to me when I was in the museum in Taiwan and I saw a painting that has like 40 different stamps and writings you know, that, uh, all over the place. And what I've discovered is that in Chinese landscape paintings, the value of the painting does not reside in the original. What did the artist intend? But rather in a conversation that's taken place over centuries. And even conflicting uh, points of view, and they're all part of this conversation. Yeah. And, and, and a viewer cannot say, oh, I'm going, to do, I'm going to disregard all the latest stuff and only go with the original. Mm-hmm. There is no original to look at. See, you cannot dismiss the history of conversation. And those, and those, pic- those uh, famous landscape paintings, those stamps on them are like, signatures from other people who have witnessed yeah. it or owned it, but also like poems people write when they see it, yeah. that it brings up in them. And that's all a part of what you see when you see these landscapes. So you can't go right. back to the original yeah. one or disregard that. It's so, so fascinating. And, and the conflicts, and the conflicts preserved right there in a painting. Mm. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I, I, when you said it the first time, I was like, well, I blew my mind. I, I, I had seen the stamps, uh, but I did not know that they were part of this uh, cultural conversation and generations-long conversation yeah, yeah. about the work um, and that we all participate. And it's a great metaphor. It's been something that sticks with me when I think about uh, biblical studies. So thanks so much for sharing that. Um, so uh, t- today, just to catch everyone up, we, uh, we are continuing our, our study of the book of Job. Um, as we talked about uh, the first week, uh, the book of Job begins with a prologue, a kind of a folk tale almost uh, like literature and ends in that same way. We'll get to the the, the, the folktale ending um, uh, next week uh, when we talk with uh, Dr. Safwat Marzuk uh, from AMBS. Um, but so that first couple of chapters really opens up one big question, which is, um, does Job worship God for nothing? 
uh, for no reason, for no purpose, for no cause? Um, is Job trying to get something out of God or not? You know, what's in Job's heart? Uh, as Dr. Sale often says, is the big question of the prologue. But then we shift really with uh, the, the shift to the, to the wisdom dialogue in chapters three uh, that goes all the way through uh, to um, really chapter 27. Uh, and it's a three round dialogue where Job and his friends start to speak. Uh, Dr. Carol Newsom shared with us some thoughts about uh, how this kind of dialogue works in the ancient world. Um, one really important thing for us, we left off with chapter 23 last week when we talked with uh, Dr. Brent Strawn about uh, Job's speeches uh, and uh, his own message in the book of Job uh, and some of the forensic language, right, the, the, the kind of language of Job wanting to take God to court, um, but also the message and, and themes about a mediator uh, and a kind of arbitrator that, that Job keeps touching on. We ended with chapter 23 where Job says, I really want to sue God in court and have a, an actual conversation and get to uh, and, and God would, would listen to me. Um, but then again, it kind of tails off and he says, but that, how can that happen? And so on. The, the last uh, cycle of dialogue uh, is uh, crucial for biblical interpreters. But just to point out, it's really uh, uh, confusing. Uh, that is in chapters uh, 24 through 27, you get an, a third cycle of dialogue where Job and his friends speak. But this time, the cycle seems to break down. So Job seems to speak in ways that sound a lot like his interlocutors, his friends, um, and his friends, some of them, they, they kind of disappear. And Zophar's third speech actually doesn't exist at all. So some biblical interpreters have said maybe some, like somebody was carrying like the, the, the sheets of paper for the, you know, the, the third cycle and they fell down and they all got scattered, right? And then they put it back together wrong or something. Uh, as Dr. Seau taught me, um, that probably didn't happen in the ancient world. Um, this seems to be kind of a breakdown of the dialogue itself, unlike other ancient Near Eastern texts of, that have these wisdom dialogues where the, the, comfort, the person ends up being somewhat slightly comforted and there is kind of a meeting in the middle. Um, there's no meeting in the middle here. Job begins to maybe mock his friends or uh, speak in ways that kind of break the dialogue. You know, he's, he's trying to break the dialogue down because it's not helping him. It's getting worse, actually. The friends get, start getting more and more upset with him. Uh, and then we get this amazing uh, poem in chapter 28. And uh, as people have pointed out, it's, it's, it's a bit unclear who even is speaking in chapter 28, but it's a poem about wisdom, uh, as if it's like this object deep down in the earth that a miner is trying to get to and you pull it out of the ground it's like a diamond you're digging deep down in the earth to get it you pull it out and you look at it but is that actually wisdom where is wisdom to be found is the big question of chapter 20 it's a beautiful poem a tantalizing poem one that people have argued over for centuries um, and unfortunately can't plumb the depths of that poem today but then we get this shift to job's speech in chapters 29 through 31 where he defends himself against God. It's kind of a, a very uh, legal speech. And he ends with him saying, I'm going to make my signature here. I'm going to wear this kind of, uh, 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 in a way, the, the, um, uh, he's going to try to take God to court. And he's going to wear uh, his, uh, what is that called when you, uh, get, you kind of defend yourself, whatever, his legal defense, he's going to wear like a crown on his head. Um, and he's saying, like, God, meet me here. Um, but then we get this interjection. And Leon, I'm sorry to sum all that up, but that's uh, the yes. This kind of, uh, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> feel free to take a, take a, you know, a, 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 a jab at any of those things that I said that may not be right. But, uh, but then we shift to a very long and uh, somewhat different uh, part of the book, and that's the speeches of Elihu. And um, for, for many years, biblical scholars have said these Elihu speeches look later. Elihu's not mentioned as one of the friends in the beginning or the end of the book. He kind of pops out of nowhere. Um, his, some biblical scholars have said his speeches are long and boring and worthless. They just kind of repeat what the friends say. They don't see anything different. One of the things that I was intrigued about, Leon, with your scholarship has been that you have been um, one of the few biblical scholars who has 
taken Elihu very seriously and has tried to rehabilitate him. So before we jump into the divine speeches, because they do come right after Elihu's speeches, I just wonder if you might um, contextualize Elihu's speech and give us a little bit of insight into your, the way that you interpret these, these texts. Mm -hmm. So part of this I learned from a medieval Jewish interpreter by the name of Yefet bin Ali from southern Iraq. Um, he basically points out to, that Elihu uh, comes late, and that's like Joseph, like Joseph's story. Mm -hmm. So wisdom has failed. The, 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 the baby among the, the, the wise have failed, and now comes this young man at the end. Mm -hmm. You remember the, the, the Joseph story, right? All the sages of Egypt, magicians and so forth, have no answer. Then comes young Joseph, the spirit of God is in him, and he's mm -hmm. able to interpret and in the book of Daniel, same thing. You've got all those sages and so forth, and they fail and comes mm -hmm. young Daniel to solve the problem. But, mm -hmm. but Yefet says, it's like that here too. And so looking at this seriously, um, the, the two speeches, the, uh, the Job speaks, has two monologues uh, before Elihu. And one monologue, it, as the text has it, ends with that poem that you mentioned, where is wisdom to be found? Mm -hmm. And then the second uh, speech, which, which is a judicial complaint, Job ends by saying to God, you answer me. Well, uh, Elihu begins by saying, wisdom is not to be found, it's what God gives you by the Spirit. Uh, and then he says, God cannot, will not answer you directly, I will answer you, yeah. because human beings are too small. See, So in, from a literary point of view, it makes perfect sense, wisdom has failed, and now comes a need for revelation. Mm. And Elihu represents revelation, uh, a mediated revelation. Um, now, there are, there are two traditions of revelation in the history of Israelite religion. Traditions that are continuous with the uh, larger uh, Canaanite uh, religious milieu. One tradition is the revelation, uh, it's called Aelistic tradition, uh, revolved around a god Ael, high god. Ael, reveals uh, only by, uh, in, through intermediaries, that is with prophets or, or uh, intervening uh, in God, uh, or dreams and vision. Hmm. Okay. Well, this is what Elihu, Elihu's an intermediary. He sees the dreams and vision. His name is Eliyahu, his son of Barak, El. So all of these suggest mediated revelation of the El tradition. Mm -hmm. And is it a coincidence then that the next speech has, is the other tradition, maybe the tradition of direct revelation. How? By storm theophany. And exactly this is what you have, you see. So the second revelation tra tradition uh, uh, replaces the first one. Elihu's mediated revelation is insufficient and mm. therefore comes a direct revelation. So to me, from a literary point of view, from the standpoint of history of religion, Elihu is indispensable. He wow. prepares the way, as it were, for Yahweh to come. Now, had Yahweh come immediately after Job's lawsuit, Job wouldn't have been able to handle it. Ah. So you get this mediated revelation, and is it a coincidence that Elihu's name, in South Spanish, sounds like Elijah? Oh, in Hebrew. interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the mediator, right? So, all kinds of interesting literary uh, uh, connections. So we mustn't dismiss Elihu's speeches. See, and and uh, and for, for for modern scholars, Elihu, oh, he's this young 
uh, guy, you know, new PhD, he comes along, he dismisses <laughs> new colleagues. No, I know no one like that. You know, and he, he speaks pompously and so forth. But uh, in Jewish interpretation, Elihu represents the most important human voice in the debate. Wow. And Calvin says he represents the, the, the voice of God in some ways. Wow. Which is why he's not rebuked at the end. See, he's not right. rebuked at the end. He was not wrong. <laughs> right. So, and in a way, if we dismiss him too quickly, then we're dismissing us, the people who want oh, yeah. to speak about God. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and there are things he says that anticipate what Yahweh will say directly. Wow. So I, f- I definitely feel like I'm swimming in the deep end right now with y'all, you, you two as a New Testament scholar. But just, just to make sure, let me check for understanding. Yeah. Is, is it right to say that, that Job's friends represent in some way or another the proverbial wisdom, wisdom that is by observation? You know, the book of Proverbs isn't special revelation. It sort of says, look to the world and you'll see right, wisdom. Right, you'll right. see the right way to live. Right. And then Job in Job 28 says, Man, where can wisdom be found? It, it, is, mm-hmm. it is besides us. It's outside of us. It's somewhere very deep in the earth. Nobody can see it. And then, and then we have Elihu who speaks and, mm-hmm. and offers what you said, mediated revelation through the spirit. He talks about, you know, sort of being filled with the spirit mm-hmm. and then having access to wisdom. Right. Right. And, it, it, and then it's, so that would be a second form of revelation. And right. then this third form of revelation is sort of direct, unmediated yeah. Uh, encounter with God through, through a storm cloud. Okay. So Elihu, in a sense, represents the prophetic tradition. There are yeah. mediators who speak in dreams and visions. And even that is not adequate. Right. Now comes the right revelation. Yeah. That's a great okay. point. So it's almost like we exhaust all the possibilities of, right. exactly. of right. the theological tradition before right. we resort to just, God, can you please show up and fix this? <laughs> you know, yeah. Oh, of course, God, does God show up and fix it? That's another question. But that's really important. Yeah. The friends are kind of wisdom tradition. Uh, Elihu is in many ways the prophetic tradition, or we can even think in terms of like Sinai right. or something, right? Like God, God's going to like speak to you and tell you what to do or tell you the things to do. And if that was, if that, if that worked for Job, if Moses right. worked for Job, then Elihu would work for Job. Right, right. Revelatory as it is, it is still not adequate. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, because Job's case is so strange, so outside the norm and so on. So right, not to dismiss right. uh, prophecy or, or Moses, but to say not, not everyone can just read Moses and say, great, this, this works for me, right? That there are uh, liminal cases. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. So, so then, uh, that, then we move to the divine speech. And uh, in, in um, uh, chapter 38, you know, uh, Elihu kind of finishes his dissertation, as we, as we might say, a young, a young upstart <laughs> scholar. Uh, in chapter 37, he finishes his defense of the dissertation. Uh, but Job doesn't respond. We get a break in the form here. If, if, it, if, if it was still con- continuing with the wisdom dialogues, we would expect Job to speak back. But instead, God interrupts, right? Interrupts in a storm. And uh, Leong, you mentioned a theophany which is uh, the kind of biblical studies word for when, when God shows up, um, for lack of a better word, in the flesh, um, when, when God shows up in the physical world, things tend to explode. You know, God is a powerful, uh, unbelievably powerful source of energy uh, and also sometimes judgment. When God shows up, there was windstorms and lightning and earthquakes and mountains start to melt. Um, so God shows up in this storm. Um, what, what is significant, uh, do you think, about, about it being a storm uh, in which God arrives here and for this divine speech. Yeah. So uh, apart from what I said about the storm, about uh, that's the mode of revelation, mm-hmm. storm is incomprehensible. 
wind is incomprehensible, not, not fully comprehensible. It's, it can veer at any time. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it uh, uh, represents the um, you know God's free presence, and it's not c- cannot be contained. Right, and it does not necessarily make make all make full sense. Yeah, it seems to me like us like when I hear some Christian, not not all, but when I hear some Christian theologians talk about God and storms, it sounds like you know like Katrina. Uh, you heard some 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 conservative Christian theologians say things like, "Well, God right. sent this storm to punish." Um, yeah. But it's just to say, storms aren't always punishing things. They can be. Right. Um, it's creative yeah. chaos in a way, and destructive yeah. chaos altogether. That is kind of God's right. sovereign. Mm-hmm. So the, the creation and destruction. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it seems like creation are, are important. All, all of this uh, things. certainly represent divine presence. Yeah. That, you know, that is not fully understandable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as somebody who grew up, I grew up in Colorado, and I really only have come to appreciate significant storms uh, since moving to the south, where there's at least, you know, uh, the, the, the reality of hurricanes seem much more present, even though we're, we live in Atlanta. And... Um, and this, you know, your language about it's completely uncontrollable. Um, and even thinking about weather predictors who, you know, are trying to say this is where, this is when the hurricane is going to make landfall. This is when and where it's going to happen. And even the best of science still can't, you know, fully predict what the hurricane is going to do. And that, that seems to be what you're saying, Leon, about, about, about God as a storm is yeah. that it is uncontrolled, but it is unpredictable. It is living. The Gospel of John talks about uh, the spirit of God being like the wind, where it goes and blows right. where it chooses, yeah. right. uh, which is maybe not as uh, powerful an image as we see with a, with a whirlwind, but suggests the same sort of yeah. divine sovereignty, divine choice. Yeah. Um, exactly. And right. it seems, too, like, uh, you know, God, God is uh, showing up here uh, in this theophany of a storm and so on. And it, it says that, that the Lord, you know, God, Yahweh, answered Job, like responded to Job. And I think a lot of people, when they read this, they think that there's going to be the answer now, as if this is the definitive answer. This puts all the other answers to shame in the book. We can forget about Job's speeches, we can forget about Elihu, we can forget about the prologue, because now we have like the unfiltered words from God. What might you think about that as, as a lens through which to read these divine speeches? Is that a good way to read them or? or it... well, so in, in almost every, you know, in every speech, right, that's come before this, it's a, so and so answered and said. Every speech is into the same way, so and so answered and said. But now for the first time, this, in this the first speech and second speech, that way answered Job. Ah. Yahweh answered Job. So God insisted that he answered Job, which I think in part to mean he's not answering the friends. Right, right. His issue is retribution. He's answered mm. Job's problem. Now, right. Job has faced two issues, basically. There's one issue of divine governance. You know, is, is the world uh, orderly? Is there some kind of plan? Or, or, or is it all haphazard, chaotic? Right? Mm. Uh, and that is in Hebrew, the word itzah, that's the same word for counsel. The word for counsel is also the word for plan and design. Wow. And the first speech of God revolves around this word, counsel or design or plan. Hmm. And then the second speech revolves around the other issue that's at the heart of Job's problem, mishpat, which is justice. justice. The second speech revolves around that. So the first speech has to do with design, plan, counsel. Second thing has to do with Mishpat. But Mishpat doesn't just mean justice. 
that's how Job used it. Mishpat also can be used in the sense of jurisdiction, prerogative to judge. See, that's not what Job's talking about, but that's what Yahweh is talking about. See, your Mishpat is not restricted my Mishpat. <laughs> if you try to restrict my Mishpat, see, you try to restrict my jurisdiction, do you have jurisdiction see, over all of these? So, so those, those are in those are two issues for Job, and Yahweh answers them. So the first speech has, has to do with, with uh, uh, it's not, which is plan or design, uh, which is an interesting term because he starts off then with the answer with this architectural metaphor. See, and, and for for to build anything, including the world, you need a plan, a design, and wisdom. So he starts there, you see. And in fact, the entire speech revolves around this intelligence, this plan, this design see, mm -hmm. that God has. And what's, what's interesting about all of this is that he, when he starts his speech in chapter 38, 4 to 18, is the first part of the speech, the whole speech is intricately designed, poetic. So he doesn't just talk about design, he performs design through wow, a poetry. Yeah. Wow. Through, through a poetry. And what's, then after the right, so that is cosmos, four parts, you know, it's very, it's very intricate design. You see different parts fit, fitting together. It then follows with phenomena, hmm. storm and so forth. And try as I, 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 I cannot figure out a design for that section. Hmm. I don't know I mean, why? The point is phenomena. You cannot have design. <laughs> and so the rain comes at any time, wind comes at any time and so forth. And then the last part of this first speech is the animal world and so forth. And there are seven uh, stanzas, perfectly designed. But smack in the middle is undesigned, you see. So design and undesigned go together in terms of the way God runs cosmos. It's beautiful. Wow, that is that is a really a cool way of structuring yeah. these. And, and also pointing out that um, many Christians want the answer to be, oh, there is a perfect plan that God has planned out in advance that you can't question, right. you can't do anything about, you have no part to play in it, kind of reducing human agency yeah. in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, just get with the program uh, and, and just take whatever God gives you, kind of a stoic way of thinking about it maybe. Um, but what you're saying is that uh, the, the God points to certain elements of the cosmos and says, hey, there's chaos here. Um, there is yeah. unpredictability. I, I have created a system that is well-ordered, and some of that ordering is actually allowing some kind of play or freedom. So God doesn't necessarily send Katrina, but God has created a weather system that, that allows for the possibility of newness, unpredictability, of some disorder within a system of order. Is that... Yeah, is that... yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's almost smack in the middle of the entire first speech is this idea of God bringing rain at a place where there's no human being whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, why would they do that? Yeah. <laughs> Bring, bring rains and, and, and the plants grow and the other things strive. So it ain't about you. <laughs> the it universe is not, yeah. ain't about us. You see? Hmm. The universe hmm. is far larger than who we are, who we are. Wow. And, and and the speech points to all the extremities of cosmos, you know, the deepest, the highest, the broadest, and so, so forth. You see, from a God's eye point of view, it's so huge, but we can only see from a human eye point of view. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. So from your point of view. All the whole world revolves around you, hmm. but it ain't about you. The cosmos is far larger. There is a plan, and you may be part of it, but you ain't all of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah. that's that's something we've we've talked about earlier in our study. Is 
is just the significance of Job's experience. And, and yeah. in the dialogue with his friends, he continues to appeal to sort of his experience, his interpretation of reality. And, and here, in, in some ways, God seems to be saying, as you just said, your experience is not all there is. The world is much bigger than you. Yeah. You, do you think that, that then, does that negate Job's experience or his interpretation of his experience or the yeah. significance of it? Or is it sort of, it's a counter to, or it's a parallel to? Right. How does that deal with, you know, uh, the, the value of Job's experience? Yes. So it's not, it's not to devalue Job's experience, but to, but, but to say you do not understand the full scope of it. You only understand your point of view, and that that's that that is important, but it's not all important. It's not mm -hmm. it's not the main thing. See, yeah, and so there's there's a there's a need to kind of take into account other people then too. Uh, yeah. It's kind of an opening, uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, to to me, um, you know, you, the 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 speech starts with God. Uh, talking about creation as if it's a building, right? This architect and the design aspect that you've talked about, um, that the whole world is designed as this kind of beautiful building. Um, beauty is an important part of this, uh, this speech too, right? That the world is kind of awe-inspiring its beauty, as Bill Brown talks about wonder, or Kathleen O'Connor in the article we posted talks about kind of uh, Elaine Scarry's uh, idea of beauty as this aesthetic uh, and ethical thing, really. Um, but also, uh, there's a shift here, and by the way, Happy Father's Day to to, to both of you. Um, uh, but but this is a fascinating text for me, precisely because it pictures God not necessarily as a father, but there's some mothering imagery here in chapter 38, um, and about the sea. Uh, so so God creates the sea and uh, and and gives birth to it, right? When it bursts, the sea bursts out of God's womb, um, and then God creates kind of bars and doors, you know, kind of put, makes a little playpen for it uh, as if it's God's child and swaddles it and ro rocks it to sleep in a way. Um, what is the, the uh, significance of the sea here? And does it tie up to the sea monster imagery that we get elsewhere in Job, um, but also in, in the Behemoth and Leviathan chapters? What, what is it about sea and chaos and God being a mother here that, that, that is uh, so important? It's, it's, it's right at the beginning of these divine speeches, and it seems to be kind of um, singled out in the text uh, as, as being significant in some way. So sea is one, one of four components. You have, you have sea, then you have, the, the, well, you have earth first, then you have sea, then you have the heavens, and then the netherworld. So four dimensions of the cosmos of which so far that I talked about. Mm -hmm. And Job in the speech where he's questioning God mentions three of these dimensions. So C is one of those, one of those dimensions. And the four these four dimensions fit in very well with ancient, uh, ancient cosmology in the Marduk speeches. Mm -hmm. So the whole world's under control. God controls C. Now the mothering idea and so forth, that's different from what, what we find. But that harks back to Job in, in Job chapter, chapter 3. He wished he, he, he would never be born. And if he'd been born, he wished he had not been nurtured and so forth. See, Job sees himself as somebody, uh, you know, he's the enfant terrible. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, you think you are chaos? See, I control all of this. Even the cosmos, this, this is what God, God, God's parentage. See, it's not just about Job. See, this mm -hmm. is the cosmos. Yeah. Even a terrible sea is under God's control. See, the heavens and so forth. So four dimensions, which are so far called length and height and depth and breadth. See, yeah. All of those together, the horizontal and the vertical axes, see, are all within God's purview. Do you know all of it? It says, you know, and scholars try to amend the text because not, it didn't make a lot of sense. I think it's deliberate. Do you know all of it? 
No, not all of it. Yeah, he knows his 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 piece. Yeah, and it's it's it strikes me that just this idea that God has created this world of order, um, and we many Christians often uh, want to like kind of know this specific plan, and this this is such an uh, an unusual answer, right? The, but also, I think it makes so much sense that God has created a world with chaos as a as a fundamental structural part of it. God didn't kill the sea like the ancient Babylonian myths where chaos is represented as a sea monster, Tiamat, and God, uh, you know, kills it or in the ancient uh, yeah. Canaanite mythology, right? God dominates and controls and uh, it, uh, murders chaos so that there can be only order and control and structure. Um, but instead, God, you see this kind of dynamic responsive creation that God God has made with these openings so that there can be something like a, a major storm or something like a pandemic that God isn't necessarily sending. God has created these structures that have opened. But I mean, it strikes me that life, uh, Bill Brown has made this point as well, um, uh, that life uh, requires um, a sense of kind of openness or even chaos for there to be anything new. If you want something new, if you want anything to grow, we talked about planting and gardening a bit earlier on this show. Uh, uh, Leong and his wife have been uh, gardening some. Uh, we've all been well, my experimenting. Wife, I've been killing. But in order to have the possibility of gardening and growth and newness, there has to be the possibility of things dying and falling away. And so destruct, yeah. destruction and uh, a kind of chaotic destruction, but also uh, a construction and a generativity and creativity and newness and the possibility for us to live and act all of those are kind of two sides of the same coin in a way, yeah, right? Yeah. And that, that might be something that Job, so does this conflict a bit with the prologue though, where we know that God has done this so that God can try to control the world more by knowing what's in Job's heart? Yeah, so I mean, the, the whole book, pro, there's progression about it. So the, mm -hmm. the, the prologue is deliberately simplistic sounding. Hmm. So to lead us here now to, to this climax. Yeah. Is from a from a pastoral perspective, um, how how do we avoid uh, reading a text like this? Particularly, you know, you could almost imagine somebody, a seminary student, perhaps getting to the end of Job and saying, "We can just get rid of the whole rest of it. We get God's answer here." And then begin to channel in their preaching or in their pastoral care. You know what? You know what, Brennan? The world is just not about you and your experience. You know, you know, people who are suffering, it's just not about you. You got to take a bigger picture. So how do we avoid uh, taking on God's response and sort of inserting ourselves so that it becomes our speech to those in our lives who maybe are suffering um, or, or, or dealing with hardship? Uh, is, is it possible, um, and, and what's, the, what's the motivation for trying to hold Job together as a whole, um, rather than, hey, we could just skip to chapter 38, you know, have chapter one, maybe chapter two, and then get to 38, and we get the answer. What's the, what's the value of holding it all together and preventing us from being really bad friends? But, but the book doesn't just end there. <laughs> it goes on. The book doesn't end with the climax. It ends with anti-climax. Right. <laughs> How does it end? You know, so in, in the end, uh, uh, Job responds, and it, it, it's an interesting response. He ends by saying, you know, God has asked him, I will ask, and you will answer me. He tells Job, I will ask, and you will answer me. He says twice when the speeches. Then in the end, Job said, I will ask, and you will answer me. Yeah. 
So Elie Wiesel saw great significance in this. You know, years ago when Elie Wiesel, you know, who survived the Holocaust, reflected on this, he thought, well, the ending of the book in 42-6, that could not have been how Job ended it. The book, it sounded as if Job surrendered. You know, mm. he should not have surrendered, mm. right? So he said the, the book originally, he imagined, did not end that way. Mm. But then finally Job uh, surrendered and he, he gave it, and I said, I cannot surrender, he says, you know. What about all the people who died in Holocaust? 20 years later, he reflected on that and he noticed that question that Job asked. I will ask and you will answer me. After having this, having this speech, or the speeches of Yahweh, Job's response, Job's response in the end is the possibility of this mutual questioning to wow. keep in dialogue with, 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 dialogue with God. And Martin Buber noticed this. He said, that, not, not, not this, this part, but the speech of Yahweh himself, he's an I, thou God. Yeah. It's a, it's a God that has invites a conversation between a human being and God, and we can keep asking. And maybe the possibility that we can keep asking, maybe that's enough. Maybe it's enough for us for this time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's great. Oh, that's such a good reminder. Um, and I'm, <clears throat> I'm noticing the time, and I'm sorry to move us uh, to another point, but uh, God kind of ends these, that first speech about uh, God as uh, a mother, divine mother, creating this generativity in the world, this divine structure, God as an architect building this beautiful world, but also with kind of disorder in it, um, and, and also this order, that both of those play one, one on the other. Um, but then God ends uh, and asks Job to respond in chapter 40. And Job seems to respond in a way that maybe God doesn't like or something. I mean, but God launches into another speech. Why is it that there's two divine speeches and that Job answers twice? And do you see a, a, a reason for that? Is there a development or anything? Yeah, so it's kind yeah. of a curious thing though. So uh, a medieval Jewish commentator, Rashi, he imagines God had spoken. Then there's a pause. And you're hearing no answer from God. God then contact and challenge the challenger. Uh, Aquinas said a similar sort of thing, you know, that, that uh, you know, that uh, Job had acquiesced too quickly. Hmm. So it remains too quickly. So God, don't just keep quiet, say something. <laughs> yeah, so like you, you, wanna, so, yeah uh, you want a real so, argument. <laughs> yeah, right? You, you have to raise this question. I give this speech. Well, so what? Nothing? See, so, so it's, it's huh. a challenge. But I, yeah. I, again, I, I take Buber's point. I think the, the point here is the, an invitation to dialogue. See, mm. The speech is given. It's not meant for you to just shut up. See, say something. Yeah. And, you and Job doesn't say something like enough. Yeah. So, so Job's response is too deferential. God wants some back and forth. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Right. Right. So not, not just shut up. You know, say something. And so... God's second speech, and then Job responds. And this time, Job says, I will ask, and you will answer me. Yeah. From now on. <laughs> yeah. And I, I do love that, that, uh, that part of the first divine speech is to say there needs to be this kind of, I don't know, disorder or like freedom in creation, some like limited right, right. within the order itself. And that then Job says, okay, I got it. And God says, no, I know that's not enough. <laughs> you know, yeah, I want you to exercise yeah. some of that chaos that I was telling you that you have within you, right? Um, right, right. And it's yeah, the, some of that uh, ability to ask questions even of the divine, of the divine uh, uh, 
God of the universe, right? So, um, uh, but then the second divine speech seems to be somewhat different than the first. It also focuses on animals, but of a, of a different kind. And what, what's the, uh, the, you said the first uh, speech is a lot about um, uh, order and disorder and, uh, and counsel and the way that those all work together. Um, and this, how, how, do, how again do you characterize the second divine speech? And how, what does it have to do with these monsters that we see? The second speech revolves around the idea of mishpat, which is not justice. Job, understand it, justice, but instead of jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. So it starts with a poem about what uh, about, about things beyond Job's jurisdiction. You do not have an arm like God. You do, you're not able to control everything. Do you have jurisdiction, right, over the cosmos? And then you can start these two animals to illustrate Job's lack of control over these two animals. Now, these two animals in, in um, recent scholarship since the 17th century have said this is hippopotamus and crocodile. <laughs> yeah, right, right. It sounds just like a hippopotamus, right? Yeah, behemoth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which prompted Josh Bernard Shaw to say something to, to the effect, you know, here, here's Job is suffering and all that. He's coming to God and God, yeah, but can you make a hippo? <laughs> <laughs> There's ignoble irrelevance, say with right. Josh Bernard Shaw. But these are not just circus animals. In fact, yeah. there's a, you know, P.D. Barnum uh, in his circus tour of uh, 1851 uh, cited Hippopotamus, you know, and, and said, uh, you know, come and see the great uh, behemoth that scripture commanded us to see. And you know, don't go to circus to see the Hippopotamus, you're not being faithful. <laughs> God be faithful with you. You're violating the Bible if you don't come to P.D. Barnum, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah that's so these are, these, are, these are metaphors of, of chaos. Yeah. The Leviathan is a mythological creature of absolute chaos, and Behemoth is a terrifying force. You know, I'm not going to go into all detail. So these are not just uh, uh, interesting, strange animals. These are terrifying, uh, fantastical animals that represent chaos, mm -hmm. right? And what's shocking is when you read the Leviathan speeches, the Leviathan is not inimical to God. And in some ways, you cannot separate the terrifying monstrosity of Leviathan with Yahweh. Mm. The Hebrew text in 41 is really difficult and scholars try to fix it so that it all sounds the same, right? So that it's clear uh, because there are parts in 41 where it's not clear whether the poet is talking about Yahweh or Leviathan. And so scholars try to fix it so that it's always clear who, who God's talking about. But the point perhaps is that you, you cannot always distinguish the monstrous and the good divine wow. presence. Wow. Right? So, so, you know, and then when, the, when it talks about uh, Leviathan's advance, uh, the language and metaphors used are advance are found elsewhere of divine theophany. Fire, steam, smoke. Right. All, but some, some ten, 10 terms or so, all of divine theophany. And then in the end, the fire turns, he is king, just as mm -hmm. Yahweh is king. So it's as if the two have morphed together. And, and uh, you know, as Carol Newsom says, by refusing to domesticate Leviathan, the mm -hmm. poet refuses to domesticate God. Mm -hmm. In the Persian period, when I believe Job was written, in moral theism, you cannot separate, you know, you know uh, in, in Persian dualism, you have good God and bad God. By monotheism, there's only one God who oversees all the world. And that is part of the mystery of God. So here, what we, what we have here is not God, a creature over against God, but a creature that in some sense 
represents divine power. Mysterium tremendum et fascinans. And it, that's partly why we don't we don't want to read uh, the character in chapters one and two, the Satan. We don't want to read that as Satan and make this as a big fight between God and Satan, because this this kind of Leviathan creature is who typically would fight against the good God of the ancient Near East, and the good God would have to right. vanquish and kill this God. So if this is a big fight between God and Satan, that's actually definitively uh, uh, kind of swept away as a possible interpretation here, right. because Leviathan is God's plaything that God is kind of proud of, even if even right. if it creates chaos and disorder. Right. If you're a true monotheist, you're not going to say that there's somebody else <laughs> responsibility. Yeah. God's right. responsibility. You may not understand it, but it is God's responsibility. Yeah. It, it strikes me too that like the sense of order and justice and counsel and uh, openness, the kind of openness that the chaos brings to creation. We talked about COVID a bit and how, um, you know, in a world where people can build and create things and uh, create new ways of uh, dealing with one another or new art and so on, there also has to be this openness for weather and for even things like right. the general that isn't that God, God's doing this to us, but it, this is part of the world where that where, where creation and death happen. Um, and it seems to me like uh, we can talk about this uh, also in terms of kind of a, a protest movement too. It's disorder. And it seems like to many people, it's striking at the heart of the idea that we have an ordered world when there is disorder in our, uh, our social system. Um, but also that disorder might be uh, a, a part of the, the bringing down of a bad structure and of the generation of a new one, but in this moment of chaos. Yeah, disorder, chaos is outside of our jurisdiction mm. using wow. God. So the first speech, right, even the weather, you know, we think, oh, we should just pray to God for good weather. And we'll do, you know, we domesticate everything in the world. We wow. pray to God for good weather and so forth. No, if it rains, it rains, and it rains, it's not about you. Right? right? And same, same thing too, right? chaos is outside of control. We have no jurisdiction. That's God's jurisdiction. We, not, we cannot understand it. It's simply a mystery. Wow. So as I was, as I was reading the divine speeches, I sort of was, was and, and thinking about how do they, how do they speak to or, or give voice to the, the current cultural, social, political world that we all find ourselves in. I was, I was, I was left wondering if these divine speeches are at all comforting for the reader um, or for Job. And and as I was asking that question, I I thought maybe that reflects my own sort of very modern sensibility that God should be comforting um, and safe and controllable, um, and that maybe 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 that's the maybe that's a bad question to ask. Well, uh, yeah, so. Um, of course, it's a question that, that we have to ask. <laughs> um, so this pandemic we have, it's not the first time. It's not the first time the world has been traumatized by a terrible, invisible monster, mm -hmm. as it were. Right? And I'm not just thinking of the pandemic of 1918. Uh, you, you look at history, you have in the uh, 14th century, the, the Great Plague, the, the, uh, the uh, Black Death, devastated much of Europe, especially France and Italy. And then you have venereal disease that came on in the 16th and 17th century. What's interesting is that in these moments where the pandemic struck the book, there had been huge spike in interest in the book of Job, hmm. and especially in the visual arts. A lot of visual art came out in the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th in response. 
to, to, the, uh, to, to the pandemic, the monstrosity that devastated the world. But what's interesting to me is that these books of art do not offer any answers. They don't offer any answers. They simply express the grief. The book of Job expressed grief and terror and fear for us, and, and yes, anger. And so they represent this art that doesn't give answer, but allows the freedom of expression of mm -hmm. grief, all right? And an open question, mm -hmm. a plea to God to intervene, but no answer. Mm -hmm. So I would say the same thing that, you know, you, we are you know, attacked by a terrible monster. It's not the first time. Yeah. From our point of view, it's like, this is all everything, you know, but it's not about his true history. It's through time and space. People have experienced terrifying things and they do not tell the full story of who God is. Yeah. It, it, the, the speeches strike me also, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot, um, uh, in in post-colonial criticism about about this desire to think that we can control yeah. and dominate the world around yeah. us and yeah. how how that has seeped its way into our theology and into right. our understanding of the Christian life and how if nothing else the speeches of Joe or God's speeches really challenge that really right. challenge even even we could say that the tendency in, in a lot of societies to control our emotions and control our experience and how we how we experience the world that we need to sort of bottle that up and control it and listening to you talk about job god's speeches with job it, it suggests that maybe maybe that's not the point maybe the point is to have this open-hearted dialogue to 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 find ways to lament or to protest um, and that that the God that we, we right. worship and serve isn't afraid of that. Yeah. Uh, if God, if if Leviathan is God's plaything, certainly God can handle right. um, the whole range of human emotions and human experience. Yeah. We, that we, we end up with this wonder at the sublimity of God yeah. in the ministry. Yeah, I love that. That's so powerful. I mean, the whole yeah. book of Job is, is against any kind of way to domesticate God good God acts a certain way because we expect a good God to behave a certain way. Right. Yeah, and like the, a God that is kind of a servant of the order, right? Uh, or yeah. a servant of our social order or et cetera, yeah. Right. So, I mean, uh, the, the God of the whirlwind. I mean, I think of uh, some of the things that we're experiencing right now, um, you know, COVID, but also, uh, you know, the kind of social upheaval we're seeing today. Um, uh, some of that we can look at and say, uh, you know, COVID isn't a punishment uh, for sins that people have committed. It's part of the natural order that God has created where there is the possibility of uh, bacterium and viruses and things like this um, and the right. mutation of these things, right? This is a part of, of, of the world. And so our response isn't to judge people because of it or something, but to try to try to fix it, try to do what we can, right? Use our chaotic powers in some way to, do, you know, um, to, uh, contribute. Um, but, but also the sense that uh, uh, when we see this kind of disorder, um, uh, you know, there's many Christians who are, who are calling on, on God to kind of restore uh, the order of, uh, let's say, all lives mattering or something like that, right? Or, or, uh, but, but instead to say, maybe God's at work here in this disorder, in this disruption, in this moment of chaos, um, not by sending the chaos, but this is a moment of generativity, which itself is divine. Uh, uh, so, I mean, I, I think of like, you know, the early church in Acts or something, right? This kind of disruption that happened on Pentecost, um, where there was 
different ethnicities communicating with each other, you know, in ways that they could understand and that this was in some way kind of disruptive to a sense of order um, and hierarchy that could have existed at the time. So in any event, all to say that this, um, it, I think it's a very different way of thinking about God's role in disorder. It's not that God is creating the disorder or that God is uh, in a way fighting against it, but that God is the, the generative source of all of this order and disorder. Yeah. yeah. They're all under God's purview. Yeah. Right. Right. So I, does put some this, stuff on us. This conversation about, about disorder and, and, and order uh, reminds me. So my, my wife's aunt uh, is, a, is a retired Forest Service ranger um, and has told this story so many times about how, how natural forest fires are. Like that, that, that in the chaos of a, of a forest fire in its an original environment is ultimately a very healthy thing that there are certain trees whose seeds cannot be released until, you know, temperatures are raised to a certain degree that, that through this chaos, um, really order and, and generativity comes about through the chaos of fire and how dangerous, uh, it is that we've, we've created communities, um, in these forest communities and then try to control that chaos. Um, and how, and, and how just this, this contrast of, our desire, I, I would say, again, no, no hating on people who live in the forest, right? Like that's totally cool. But that, that ultimately our desire to, to hem in chaos or completely control chaos is ultimately destructive. Um, in the same way that, that perhaps people would be interpreting some of the protests that we're seeing in the cities around us and say, no, we gotta, we gotta, you know, control that. We've gotta, we've gotta go through the structures that we've created to deal with this. And, and that's ultimately a, perhaps a destructive way to sort of say no to that chaos when I mean, I, maybe I don't, there, I, there is a reason for it. The only point is that you don't try to control chaos, right? I mean, you, you, don't, try, you don't try to control pandemic. You do. You try your best, but you may not be able to do it. Yeah. yeah. You able to fix it. You may be out of your control. And not to say you don't do it. You try. It is yeah. important to try. Order is order is better than chaos. <laughs> but you are yeah. not in charge. But you are not in charge. You do your best, but you are not in charge. You're only one tiny, teeny tiny little uh, uh, point in the entire cosmos. Yeah. And so, uh, Leon, what would you say to the question, is Job a theodicy? And if that word is new to anyone, we'll be talking about this more next week, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on this. But a theodicy is this uh, big kind of, uh, uh, it's, the, it's a big question to say, um, how could it be possible that God is good, that God is all powerful, and that evil exists? And so if you say, well, Satan's the, you know, the one who brings evil in the world or whatever, that's kind of one solution to the question of theodicy. But we're saying that's not what Job is saying. So uh, is Job a theodicy? Is it trying to answer that 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 trilemma, um, or or is it doing something different here? So the, the term theodicy was coined in 1710 by by Leibniz, uh, who was responding to a French philosopher who who argued that the world, the chaotic world, uh, proves that God doesn't exist. So, so Leibniz said, "Well, you know, the world uh, is at the optimum, as best as it it ought to be." So the Odyssey for Leibniz is basically a defense of God's goodness. So in that sense, the book of Job has a number. So to theodic means to defend, defend the, the goodness of God. The book of Job has a number of responses, right? Job's friends are definitely theodic. They defend God's goodness. Job is anti-theodic. <laughs> he argues against the goodness of God. Right. See, Yahweh is ah-theodic. He's not addressing the issue. <laughs> it's a theodic. 
it's not about the question of, of God's goodness. And the framing of the book itself is atheotic, right? Mm -hmm. How does it start? It starts saying, well, God participates in this wager, right? Uh, is there any question that God was involved with it? No. At the end, God gives back everything twofold. Who does that? Who does right. that but one who's guilty? So the framing of the book suggests that theodicy is not the issue. Right. It does not, it does not try. There are different points. So there are those who defend God and then so forth. But in the end, it's not a defense of God's goodness. Yeah, it's a book that invites us to join the, question, the questioning. Yeah, as if God is bigger than that. God doesn't necessarily yeah. need us to defend God, right? right? Yeah. So, so, so Job doesn't offer us a final answer. The speeches of Job don't even offer us a final answer, but they, yeah. they invite us to the sort of rigorous questioning, rigorous yes. dialogue with maybe our human counterparts, but certainly with God that yeah. is modeled in the book of Job. Right, mm. right. Mm. With, with many voices, there's Job's voice, there's, there's friends' voices, there's Elihu's, revelatory, immediate revelation, all of those voices, and, and the voice of the narrator in a lively, spirited conversation in which we are invited to participate. Um, this may be a different way of asking that same question, but just to kind of make it clear for folks, we talked a little bit about how um, in Job's speeches, he develops a, uh, like a legal metaphor, right? He wants to sue God, take God to court. In part, this might play on some of the ideas of covenant, that God's made a deal with us, that God's going to love us and take care of us, and we're going to love God. And Job didn't stop loving God. So what happened, right? What, did, did God, uh, you know, kind of go back on the deal or something? Um, and so Job might sue God, take God to court. And want, that's why Job wants this mediator and so on. Um, so uh, if Job in chapters uh, 29 to 31 is suing God, officially suing God, um, and then we get the Elihu's intervention, and then, then we come to the divine speeches, um, what would your response be to the question, so what happened with that divine lawsuit? I mean, if he, if he could sue God, what would happen? But, but what actually happens with the legal metaphor here? Ed Greenstein argues that it's legal metaphor still in the Yahweh speeches. I don't. I, I, don't, see, I don't see God really taking up legal metaphor. It's beyond human jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. So in other words, uh, the, the, the response is, uh, you can't sue God. Sorry, it's just not the rules of the game. <laughs> That's right. It's not, it, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Laughed out of court. So, yeah. You, you yeah. can't take God to traffic court. Yeah, the, the whole justice <laughs> issue is taken up another plane. Yeah. It's not something that can be resolved in a court of law. That there is a, a divine justice, but it's beyond us. We we work with like a, a different kind of right. rules in a way. Right. Ruba calls it distributive justice. <laughs> God gives, dispenses justice. We are about retributive justice. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. about distributive justice, he says. I like that idea of distributive or redistributive justice. That sounds yeah. Uh, timely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at I'm looking at the time, and we are approaching the end. We have about uh, a minute or two uh, to left. And Brennan, I know that we want to sort of give our our viewers a heads up um, about mm -hmm. what's what's going on. So we have one more week in the office hour study of Job. Next week we'll conclude. Um, as, as Brennan mentioned with Safwat uh, Marzuk. And then we're going to take July off um, and, and start in August with a study of the book of James. Um, and so more details on that to follow. But our, our plan right now, because we, we think that some faith communities are going to go back to worshiping in, 
uh, together, at least in some form or fashion. And so we want to be responsive to that. And so our plan right now, Brennan, if I'm correctly, yeah. it, yeah. we're going to move to a Wednesday evening study in August so that, so that folks that maybe have Sunday morning responsibilities or maybe people are catching back up with their Sunday school classes um, can still do that, but we can continue to serve uh, the larger church by providing educational offerings that can be reused um, during the week or people can join us live on Wednesday night. Is that, is that right, Brennan? Yeah, yeah. And, and part of that too is just that we've heard that Wednesday nights um, are not coming back as quickly as Sunday morning worship. That seems to be where people put in their energy for obvious reasons. Um, but so if, if, there, uh, if there are some people who are looking forward to live Wednesday evening um, uh, uh, Bible studies and uh, adult education conversations, we're going to provide that. Also, you can continue to just watch these on YouTube or later on, on Facebook and so on, um, uh, or watch them and talk about them on Sundays and so on, so that it can still be used for Sunday mornings. It can be used for Wednesday nights. That's our idea now. If you have uh, particular ideas about that, please feel free to comment and just leave, leave, uh, leave us some, some ideas or email us. Um, we're, we're wide open to hear what y'all are talking, talking about and what you'd like to see. Um, but uh, so our idea, July off, Come back in August. Give us a little bit of a break. Uh, and uh, if you have ideas about that too, just let us know. Um, yeah. So thanks. And uh, Leon, can I just ask you a final word on Job? Uh, what yeah, have a final word? Final word. Yeah. What 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 do you think we should take away from uh, not only divine speeches but from Job in general? Um, Big question. I know. Yeah. No. Well, the the the, the freedom and the privilege. To be engaging God in conversation and give and take. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That is, uh, yeah. That it, and it's often not what people take away or think that they're going to take away from Job. Don't, don't be afraid. The... Don't be afraid to ask. Right. Wow. Even if wow. there's no answer. Wow. That's well, thank you word. so much. So much again. Uh, 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 this is again, Dr. Chunlong Seao um, from Vanderbilt University. We are uh, uh, so uh, overjoyed and grateful uh, for you taking your time. Mm -hmm to join us here and to share your wisdom. And we are all looking forward to learning more from you in uh, the Job uh, chapter 22 through uh, 42 commentary. Uh, so, and which, you know, we, we understand that might take a long time uh, uh, to get through the divine speeches here. They're pretty complicated, but uh, thank you so much again. And uh, we all looking forward to seeing y'all next week with uh, Dr. Safwat Marzuk from AMBS. Uh, and he will be joining us to talk about the question, uh, is Job a theodicy and also uh, the prose uh, epilogue. So we'll be trying to wrap things up about Job then. So thank you all so much and uh, see y'all next week. Thanks everyone. See you later. I'm going to close this up off of Facebook real quick for you. Thank you very much. Bye.